Hi there, it's great to be with you. Uh, we're in a series called The King and His Cross, and if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. Today we're going to be looking at the most important night in history. Right? It's followed by the most important afternoon in history, and then two days later we get the most important morning in history. But today we're going to be looking at the most important night in history, and it's the night of the handover. The night of the handover. This is Paul... In the earliest description of this night that we have, right, historically speaking, the earliest record we have, Paul describes it as the night when Jesus was handed over. And the question I want to consider today is simply, by whom? Right, who is responsible for the handover? Right, I love whodunits. I love uh, reading stories or watching things. On, I love watching Line of Duty and trying to figure out who H is. I love that sense of, oh, is it them? Oh, it might be him. Oh! You know, I love that kind of drama. I love reading Poirot's and trying to work out, oh, is it this person or is it the butler in there? Or is it the old, you know, sort of person who's trying to always hated him or whatever it might be. And I love that sense of who's responsible for this thing. And in most detective stories, there's several possible villains. That's what makes it exciting. This could be this person or that one or that one. And in the story of the handover, in this chapter of scripture, there are at least five possible candidates who are responsible for handing over Jesus. Five individuals or groups that you could say, yeah, they handed Jesus over to be crucified and to death. And the most obvious candidate is obviously Judas. He's the person most of us would think of, and that's why often people translate it, not hand over, but betray. And so that makes it seem like it's quite obvious that it's Judas. But I think things are more complicated than that. I think there are at least five, in, five groups or individuals you could look at and say, this person, in some sense, handed over Jesus to what happened to him. So what we're going to do, perhaps slightly unusually, is we're going to read the chapter in five different chunks according to which candidate is handing over Jesus in that particular passage. And we're going to start with the ultimate villain, who becomes in the first six verses the ultimate villain of the piece, who is Satan. Right, so we're going to read, start by reading Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 6, in which the person who hands over Jesus in many ways is Satan. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. In some ways, the individual responsible for handing Jesus over to crucifixion was Satan. That's in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. The cross is a dark, evil, satanic moment. And we're supposed to see that, and that's why Luke's told us this. Satan is responsible for the handover of Jesus to death. This is a sick and twisted moment. This is the darkest thing that's ever happened on planet Earth, and that's why it literally goes dark in the middle of the day. That's why there are nails and whips and blood and screams in this story. That's why, if you know the Narnia stories, that's why C.S. Lewis had the White Witch being the person who killed Aslan. Right? There's no, if you know the Narnia stories, there's no equivalent of the Romans in the Narnia stories, the people who actually perform the execution. The person who kills Aslan, the Jesus figure, 
is the white witch, is the Satan figure, right? With howls of delight from all her ghoulish allies. So at one level, Jesus is handed over to crucifixion by Satan himself through the agency of Judas Iscariot. Now we mustn't exaggerate his power. We're going to learn later on in the chapter that Satan asks to sift Simon like wheat and Jesus effectively prays for him so that it doesn't happen in the same way as it happens to Judas. So it's not like Satan's got unlimited power. He can do whatever he wants. Let's not exaggerate that. But in this part of the text, the handover of Jesus to crucifixion comes about as a result of the the agency of Satan in and through Judas Iscariot. So he's the first candidate. But Jesus is also handed over or betrayed by his friends, right? Because there's not just one of Jesus' disciples, but two who are responsible for betraying Jesus in this chapter. Judas betrays him actively in arrest. Peter betrays him passively in denial. But they both hand him over. Verse 21. You should jump down to verse 21. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Then jump down to verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, notice the similarities between these two men, these two friends of Jesus, right? In both cases, there is a betrayer of Jesus who doesn't know what they're about to do. I always think that's a weird version, a weird a detail in the story when it comes to Judas, don't you? But sin deceives people, whether in Judas's rationalization, oh, it's, you know, presumably Judas is going, well, it's not that bad, is it? Because when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they all ask each other and themselves, do you think it's me? You think, how on earth is Judas sitting there going, is it me? Of course it's you. But somehow, and this is sin does this, sin tricks you into thinking that the thing you're doing is not actually as bad as it feels. So somewhere in your soul, there is something saying, this is evil, this is sick and wrong, you mustn't do it. And then another part of your brain says, no, it's not that bad. I'm not betraying him. I'm just, I think I'm doing the right thing for our general cause and our movement by giving him up before it goes badly wrong or whatever it might be. People do that all the time. So sin has tricked Judas into rationalizing what he's doing. But at the same time, sin has tricked Peter by being crazily overconfident. Do you notice? He says, I'm ready for death. I'd die for you. It says, it turns out you wouldn't actually look a servant girl in the face and admit to knowing him. But you think that the way you'll respond in a few hours time is to say, I'd die for you too. I'll be crucified with you. In both cases, the betrayer doesn't know what they're about to do. And in both cases, Jesus does know what they're about to do and he tells them. But notice the difference as well between the two stories. In the case of Judas, verse 22, Jesus says, woe to that man. In the case of Peter, verse 32, he says, Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Notice that there is a dramatic difference here between the traitor and the rock, Peter, right? In that both of them are going to let Jesus down badly and hand him up, effectively give him up. 
But Judas is going to do it and is going to experience permanent woe and Peter is going to do it and he's going to turn back and then he's going to be able to strengthen his brothers and ultimately be the person who preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. You notice what's the difference between the traitor and the rock? It's not whether or not they fall because they both fell. The difference is whether or not they repent after they do. That's the difference, right? They both let him down badly. But one of them comes to see what he's done and repents and turns back and then goes to strengthen his brothers and the other does not and ends up hanging himself. Let's now carry on with the theme of being handed over by his friends. We're going to read now a chunk from verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who'd come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I always find this a very moving story, but clearly Judas betrays Jesus. The word betray is used three times. And if that was it, we could just breathe a sigh of relief that it's just one bad apple. But the story is more complicated than that because Peter betrays Jesus as well and then weeps bitterly. And so do we. So have I. I remember the, probably the thing in my life I've been most ashamed of doing. I remember the night. I remember the smell of the air. I remember doing something of which I'm just appalled that I did it. And then a few minutes later, seeing a friend of mine doing some street evangelism in the middle of the streets of Cambridge where I was at the time. And I was to get to my room, I had to walk past this group of them who were just being as Christian and godly as is possible to be. And I had just been as ungodly as it was possible to be. And I remember walking past and the shame of seeing them doing it. And then one of them, I remember my friend Tristan just looked at me and looked straight at me and just gave me a big grin. And I remember that look of like, ah, oh, the shame and the regret and the desolation of doing it. And what I found that night, I thought I have, betrayed Jesus. I have let him down so badly in the way I've behaved. But as time goes on, what I also came to see was true, is that the mercy of Jesus extends even when I do things like that, even when you do, that Jesus reaches out to us and says to us, it's okay, when you've turned back, when you've come to realize what you've done, you regret it, you repent of it, you turn your life around, when that's happened and you come back to me, I will affirm and encourage and forgive you. And I'm going to tell you, go and strengthen your brothers. It's happened to me. It's probably happened to you. It certainly happened to Peter. And so there is, Jesus, in a sense, is handed over by his friends. But the way that those friends respond afterwards makes all the difference to how it ends up for them. So Jesus is handed over by Satan 
and he's handed over by his friends. But in another sense, he's handed over by his enemies. Let's read verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Now, this is the first of many of a number of trial scenes in Luke in which Jesus is handed over by Judas to the soldiers, handed over by the soldiers to the Jewish council, handed over by the Jewish council to Pilate and then to Herod and then to Pilate again and finally handed over to the will of the crowd in crucifixion. And Luke uses the same Greek word to describe several quite different events. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. Judas, are you handing over the Son of Man with a kiss? Pilate released the man who'd been thrown into prison, Barabbas, the one they'd asked for, and handed over Jesus to their will. Do you see that Luke uses this word several times of very different things because he wants us to see that the same motive is involved in all of these people's handovers, even if their actions seem to be very different. All of these people want Jesus dead, but none of them want to be responsible for it. It's the classic hot potato story. The cowardice is just extraordinary. I want this guy dead, but I don't want to do it. So I'll hand him over, Judas, to the soldiers, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate, and the crowd, and the Sanhedrin are all in there. And all of these different groups want Jesus dead for different reasons, but they don't want to pull the trigger themselves, so they keep handing him over. And taken together, those texts provide us with an uncomfortable truth, which is that Jesus is actually handed over by everybody in this story. There is not a person who features in this chapter who in some ways is not responsible for handing Jesus over to crucifixion. Everybody does it. Whether it's the disciples just falling asleep or Peter denying him or Judas giving him up or the Sanhedrin or Pilate or Herod or anybody, all of them, even the crowd handing Jesus over to the Romans to kill him, everybody involved is handing Jesus over to death. Close friends, would-be friends, fierce opponents, indifferent governors, fickle crowds, all of them kill Jesus. So it's not just the Jews, it's not just the Romans, it's not just leaders, it's not just people who look after the money in the disciple group, treasurers or trustees or whatever. Every single one of us is responsible for the death of Jesus. That's what Martin Luther said, we carry his nails in our pockets. And this story is told in such a way as to point the finger at all of us who through our sin have handed Jesus over to death. It's a chapter like very few others in scripture that raises the question that's so well expressed in that Mitchell and Webb sketch I've quoted before here. Where just you've got these two guys looking at one another, both wearing sort of Nazi caps and they look at each other and then one of them says, Hans, are we the baddies? But this chapter makes me ask that question says, hang on a second, this is me. This is all of us. I'm responsible. His en- the enemies of Jesus have handed him over. And by reading this text, I come to see I have been one of those as well. I've handed Jesus over to death, just like everybody else. So Jesus is handed over by Satan, his friends, and his enemies, which effectively amounts to everybody. And yet in another sense, we come to perhaps the most mysterious reality in the story, which is, that Jesus is handed over 
by God. Let's read verse 35 to 46. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what's written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now in that little passage, there are two indications that Jesus is actually handed over to crucifixion by God. Right? One of the things is very obvious, the other one is much more subtle. The obvious cl clue, hint, indication that Jesus is handed over to crucifixion by God the Father is that Jesus prays that the Father would take away the cup of suffering from him and then in one of the most extraordinary lines in the whole Bible says, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, it is the will of the Father that Jesus go to the cross and be crucified. It is the Father's choice. It is the Father's responsibility. It is the Father's decision, among others, that Jesus go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. So when Jesus cries out in his humanity, oh, Father, please, may there be something else. Is there anything else? No, I am going to submit to your will. What would you have me do? The answer from heaven comes back. What I would have you do is to lay your life down for the sins of the world. So there is a very clear indication that the handing over of Jesus to death is the will of the Father. But there's a subtle indication in the passage as well. And it's effectively that if you know scripture really well, I think Luke is saying, if you know what, where these passages come from, you will be aware that this is not even a surprise. That right back in the book of Isaiah, you will see evidence that God the Father was going to hand Jesus over to death. Because Jesus quotes in verse 37, he says, it's written and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Now that quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, comes from Isaiah 53 verse 12, in which the text in the Old Testament says, his soul was handed over to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and was handed over because of their transgressions. In other words, on the night that he died, and before he dies, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm doing this to fulfill scripture. And there is a scriptural text that says, I am going to be numbered with sinners and I'm going to be handed over to death by the will of my father. And that is the exact reason I'm doing this, because it has always been written way back in the prophet Isaiah that this is the way in which Israel and the whole world is going to find forgiveness is through me being handed over by my father to death. And I'm going willingly in order that I might fulfill what he said would happen. Wowzers. So Jesus is handed over by Satan, by his friends, by his enemies, 
even by God the Father. But in a fifth and final and glorious sense, Jesus handed himself over. He wasn't forced into the cross as a powerless, tragic victim. He went willingly. And it's so important we stress this because otherwise we can make Jesus feel like a sort of unfortunate victim of circumstance. Either theologically, God the Father did it to Jesus. So no, no, no. Jesus and the Father joyfully and willingly did it together. Or you can see him as a victim of circumstance of the devil being too powerful or of human beings being too powerful and eventually there's nothing Jesus could do to stop it. But that's not the case at all. Read from verse 7 to verse 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is not the behavior of someone being forced into something awful by unfortunate circumstances. Everything about this incredible moment, which is still to this day celebrated by over a billion people every week, everything about this moment is intentional. Jesus has planned this meal as a Passover meal. He wants his death to be understood that he is the Passover lamb bringing freedom to Israel from slavery. And he knows he's going to die and he's prepared for it. And in fact, he's even eagerly anticipating it. Verse 15, I eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is so important, friends, because otherwise we read the chapter and think, isn't this awful, this terrible thing that happened to Jesus? And Jesus is saying, no, there is some horrible suffering to come, but I have been looking forward to the result of that suffering. And I am looking forward to spending this meal with you so I can tell you what it all means. He's excited about it. He's prepared for it. Random details like you'll see a guy with a water jar and it'll all be furnished just like I said. He's given his disciples bread and a cup which they are to understand and then celebrate in remembrance of him. And he's already looking not just to the suffering but on the other side of it. He said, I'm not going to drink wine again. I'm going to be teetotal until the kingdom of God comes when we will all have the biggest and most long-lasting party you can possibly imagine. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Everything in this story is setting us up to understand that this is not simply Jesus suffering the result of somebody else's handing over. This is Jesus handing himself over for the sins of the world and giving us a meal to memorialize and experience once again weekly the joy of that victory every time we gather. So yes, Jesus was handed over, but he wasn't a tragic victim of circumstances. He handed himself over for us, for you, for me. And that's why this is the greatest night there's ever been. 
There are lots of tragic deaths in history. Lots of people who've been handed over to death, whether by terrified friends or gleeful enemies, in horrible, unjust circumstances. But this is not that, right? This is the deliberate, orchestrated, and strangely joy-filled work of the Father, Son, and Spirit together that Jesus would be handed over to save the world from their sins. This is Aslan slowly walking up the hill to the stone table, knowing that at any moment he could turn on his captors and destroy them with a roar, but he doesn't. This is the Lord Jesus handed over by everybody, but knowing that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Praise God for the handover. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this astonishing night, for its astonishing power. We praise you for the victory that will follow. And we thank you that even though we are all implicated, Lord, ultimately, this was not simply a result of our sin. This was a result of your mercy and the willing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus himself to redeem us from our sin and conquer the power of death. We are so grateful for him. And we pray that in this Easter season, we would live and delight in the victory of God who became man and was handed over for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.